Thank you. Good morning. So this week, or last week on Sunday, uh, as we'll touch base on what sin is and the implications of sin, we as a church had to deal with a bit of sin. Um, we went to go count the money that was given to us for VBS that all the children had donated and some was missing. I went through and I asked everybody who knew where it was in the building and nobody knew what had happened to it. And so in reviewing our security cameras uh, during last Sunday's service, when I was up here preaching God's word, we found out that someone had come into the building, had rummaged through uh, my office, Marty's office, as well as the kitchen, and had stolen uh, about $800 of the money that was given for the kids. And so it was a big, big bummer. Uh, I wanted to share that with you. That's why we have locked the door downstairs during our service. Um, but by God's grace, we have money available where we were still able to uh, buy the things that we committed for the kids uh, at VBS. So it was a big bummer uh, for us as we went through that process of trying to figure it out. We have been in touch with Vermont State Police and the Royalton Police as well um, to see if we can find this individual. Um, but it's okay. It's God's money and we can pray for her soul. So. Uh, this morning, church, we will be in Genesis chapter 38, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Uh, this, as one pastor, Joel Beakey, has said, might be the most difficult chapter in all the Bible, if not at least in the book of Genesis to understand or preach from. He says in Genesis of Genesis 38 that there's five main purposes. First, there's a suspense as we've seen the life of Joseph. Now he is in jail and now there's a, a break in the text. We have to wait 20 years as these things transpire and we get back into the life of Joseph. Second is a contrast. We'll see a huge difference this week in Judah, one of the sons of Jacob, compared to Joseph next week, another son of Jacob, as they both deal with similar sexual sin, but have two different ways of responding. Third, we see dependence on God by his people. Once again, a man has, leave, uh, has left the promised land, he has left his promised family, and he is under the subjection of the promises of God that we desperately need as God's people as well. Fourth, we see some messianic themes as Judah takes a prominent role where Judah is the son of Jacob through whom the Messiah, Jesus, would come. And fourth, I mean, finally, fifth, we have a need for God's grace. We will see this utter need that we all have for God's grace as we look at our text this morning. So would you bow with me as we pray again for our time this morning? Father, incline our hearts to your testimonies. 
Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things in your law. Unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning in your steadfast love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll pick up in our text in verse 1 of chapter 38 of Genesis. So it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son and called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. So it's been a couple weeks, but if you recall what took place in our previous chapter, in chapter 37, Joseph had these dreams and his brothers sold him into slavery. And it's a good reminder that uh, the sons of Jacob are about this entire section. As Genesis 37.2 reminds us in this section, these are the generations of Jacob. Chapter 37 and this story is not just about one son of Jacob, though. It's about all of his sons. We've seen Reuben in chapter 35 and his sin. Simeon and Levi we saw in chapter 34 and their sin. 37, all of the 11 brothers of Judah, or Jacob, selling their brother into slavery and their sin. And that brings us to our chapter this morning in 38, where these things took place while Joseph was in prison. And it doesn't take us long, does it, to realize that the brothers who Joseph had the brothers that were prior to Judah in the birth order and Reuben and Simeon and Levi were just as sinful as Judah was. Judah was a sinful man and maybe even a little more sinful than those previous three. We see Judah's first mistake, though, in the text this morning, that he has separated himself from his family. He has left and went to this area called Adullah outside of the promised land, away from his family, the promised family. He has wandered off and he is now surrounding himself with a sinful group of people. And this sets the stage for the entirety of our chapter this morning in chapter 38. One thing I want you to realize and remember as we're walking through this text is what these individuals see or look at or perceive. And that includes what God sees. In verse 2, it says, Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite, and he took her and went into her. Judah saw what was pleasing into his eyes. And if you recall our theme going back all the way to chapter 3, these things took place in Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And like Eve, Judah saw what he wanted. It was not the fruit that was good for food, but it was rather a woman for his own pleasure. 
And in Genesis, marriages for this promised family to Canaanites were never applauded. Abraham did not want his servant Eleazar to take a daughter of the Canaanites for his son Isaac in chapter 24. In chapter 26, we see that Esau took a wife of the Canaanites and it caused his mother and father's life to be bitter. In chapter 28, Isaac would not allow Jacob to take a wife from the Canaanites either. And what we learn from this church is that Judah was unaware of what God's desires were for his people. He disregarded the instructions that we've seen repeated throughout the book of Genesis as I reference. He was making decisions for himself, for a marriage that was purely for his pleasure. Nothing else is said about this marriage with Judah and this woman other than he took her, he consummated a marriage with her, she had a son, she had another son, and had another son. And that's it. And this town that Judah settles in is significant as well. It is called Chezeb. And it's clear, right, that, the, that names do matter in the book of Genesis. We've, we've seen this, right, as, as we've seen with Isaac, means he laughs. Or Jacob means that he is a deceiver. Well, Chezeb means to lie or to be proved a liar. These words from the Apostle John come to mind when I was studying for this in 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. And so, church, Judah is in sin. He has been deceived, and he thinks that he doesn't have any sin as he goes into the town of liars, and most importantly, he has lied to himself. He has deceived himself into his own sin. He has left the land of the covenant. He has departed from the covenantal family, and now he has been separated from God and his people and has associated himself with some ungodly friends in Hira. He's also married an ungodly woman for his pleasure, and this text says that Judah has now turned aside and went with this ungodly friend. Judah was to focus this way, on the straight, the narrow path, but he has turned his eyes to the side to something other than what God has given in his counsel. And so church, if we have seen anything in our study in the book of Genesis is that we need each other. We need God's word as a reminder to avoid and flee from sin. But I'll, and I'll spoil it for you that we get to see Joseph flee from a similar sin next week. But we need each other, church, to help each other, to give ourselves to fellowship with each other, to remind each other of God's word, to encourage us in God's word, to help us to follow this straight and narrow path that God gives us in his word. And if we do fall into sin, we can help each other to bring us back to the direction and the counsel that God has for us. But when we don't follow 
the guidance that we have of God and His Word, sin has an opportunity to reign. Sin has an opportunity to take over. And this happens with Judah and his three sons as we pick it back up in verse 6. It says, And Judah took a wife for Ur his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of the brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that his offspring would not be his. So whenever he went to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Before we see what took place, I think it would be appropriate to spend a couple minutes explaining what is, what is happening here culturally. Moses would write more about how familiar, which should surprise us and cause us to worship, though, church, is that when God gives grace to some, to not die, but most glorious, to believe in His Son for our salvation, that we would live eternally. Friends, oops, lost my spot. So Judah's son Er was wicked in God's sight, and God took his life. And Onan as well, the second birth, he was wicked as well, and God took his life in verse 10. Onan, he didn't want to share the rights that he had with his deceased brother. He didn't want the son that he would give birth and seed to, to be his brother's son. Genesis really doesn't care about first or second as it relates to one's rights. But it's important that this is sin that Onan was practicing. Once again, like us, as people see things that are a delight to the eyes, they sin. God knows He sees our sins and there are consequences to sin. Church, God would not be just if He left sin unpunished. The gracious thing is that God sent His Son to be punished so that those who believe in His death and resurrec resurrection would not be punished. And so Judah, who set up this marriage, his sons were wicked. They were taken by God. And it's very different than the story that we heard earlier in Genesis chapter 5, where Enoch walked with God, and then he was not, for God took him. Enoch got a one-way ticket to heaven. But these others who did not walk with God got a one-way ticket to hell where there is no turning back. And so Judah's selfishness, it, it continues here in the text, just like his son's selfishness. Just like Judah wanted to take a wife for himself, for his pleasure, he didn't want to give up his third son, fearing that his third son would die as well. And so he tells Tamar that he will keep his son, his third son, for himself. 
And although this third son was still young, illegally, this son should eventually become Tamar's wife. And so Judah begins to treat Tamar if, as if she's bad luck or as if she, she's dangerous, not realizing that it was the evil of his two sons that caused those two boys to die. And the narrator, Moses, he shows us that Judah does not plan on keeping his word with this at all. And so, friends, sin will find us out. It will find us out in one of two ways. It will find us out in this life as we deal with the consequences of sin. Romans 13 talks about how governments are established by God to punish wrongdoers. We have prisons and justice systems to deal with sin, oftentimes imperfectly, but it is God's way of punishing sin this side of eternity. The other way that God punishes sin, as I alluded to, is through death. The wages of sin is death, and this serpent, as we saw in Genesis chapter 3, was cursed in the garden, and to Adam, to all of us in this room, God says, to dust you will return, that death will come because as a result of sin. God must punish sin, or he would fail to be God. He must be just, and he must keep his word. But Romans 6.23 doesn't just say the wages of sin is death. It finishes with, by saying, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so for those who believe in the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, on their behalf, there is eternal life. We will see more of this later this morning in our text, but before we move on, we must pick up back where we left off with Tamar at her father's house, waiting for her father-in-law to fulfill his promises that he had no intentions of keeping. We'll pick it back up in verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. He and his friend Hira the Adulamite, and when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her and on the roadside and said, Come, to, let me come into you. For he did not know what she, that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. And so he gave them to her. He went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on her garments of her widowhood. And so, until this time in the story, Tamar has been an object of passivity, an object to be used, and a woman to be mistreated, not only by Judah's sons, but as we've seen, by Judah himself. She's been in compliance and in retreat, and now she realizes that there's been more injustice done to her. 
And so she takes actions into her own hands in verse 14, again realizing that Judah did not keep his word. And it appears as if Judah's sexual sins and escapades are kind of known to others, including Tamar. And so she takes advantage of the situation. So this childish, or childless widow knows that this man Judah's wife, the one whom he married for his pleasure, is now gone. And his sons were wicked in similar ways, and the circumstances are opportune for her to make things right. And so the, the circumstances around this where Judah would go to this town is during this sheep shearing festival. And in the Canaanite cultural, this was a festival of licentious behavior. Sheep shearing season was a, a worshipful time in a fertility cult. It was similar to what you might see in Mardi Gras today in New Orleans or Carnival in Brazil where people participate in some gross sins. But just like clothing was used to deceive Isaac of Jacob and Esau, or was used to deceive Jacob with Leah and Rachel when their marriage was consummated, so too now Tamar uses clothing to disguise herself from a man who is blinded by his sin to deceive him some more. And so Tamar tricks Judah to take his responsibility seriously, albeit it's in a deceitful way, acting on behalf of her unborn child. Back in those days, women had few options, few choices, but Tamar was clever and astute and made sure that even in this sin, that the circumstances were at least reasonably recognized and rationalized. And the theme of sight continues as well in this last section, leading to the veiling, the covering of Tamar. In verse 14, we see Tamar notice that Shelah was grown, the man who should have been her new husband. Tamar now, see, she saw that she was being sinned against. In verse 15, we see that Judah notices her. He turns his eyes and she was being, and he wanted to be with her. It's the same verse or verb that was used in verse 2 when Judah saw this Canaanite woman that wanted, that he wanted to be his wife. And then in verse 16, Judah turned his face towards Tamar and looked at her. Judah should have kept looking forward. He should have kept his eyes on the narrow path. He should not have turned his eyes and succumbed to the temptation. And unfortunately, another son of Jacob was wicked and turned his eyes into grave sin and gave himself into sin, being blinded by his own desires and his own pleasures. You may recall a few weeks ago how I brought out some terminology from our text that Jacob had lifted up his eyes. And this term, lifted up his eyes to God, points to God's blessing and God's provision and God's care to the people of Israel. And Judah was not looking straight and following God's word, nor was he looking up to see God's provision, but rather he's being deceived and turning his eyes aside. 
his eyes were blind, like his father Jacob, like his grandfather Isaac. He even assumed Tamar was a prostitute, showing this probably wasn't something abnormal for him to do. On top of all of this, Judah's blindness that took place in the town of Aneum. This town means two eyes. And given Tamar's veil, Judah's inability to recognize her, it's ironic what God uses in his providence to name and use different towns. As one commentator suggested and said, it's ironic that God's providence, that these events took place known as eyes. When Judah was blind, and God is making his point clear, that we should not be blinded by our sins, by our actions, and the effect that each of these have on others. The Apostle Paul picks up on these circumstances of being blind. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that, that Satan has blinded the mind of unbelievers. They cannot see. We cannot understand apart from the grace of God to believe that we are blind. And so Tamar continues to take advantage of Judah's blindness. In exchange where Judah should have given Tamar his third-born son, his youngest son, whom he held back because he didn't want his son to die, as well as due to his wickedness, Judah offers a goat, an animal exchanged for his remaining son. We will see that God's son is sufficient exchange. We see this in Hebrews 10.4, says it is impossible for the blood of goats, bulls and goats to take away sins. And the words in Isaiah 1.11 says, where God says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. And it's amazing to see, church, as we are opening up this text, that the gospel becomes more and more clear in the as these circumstances progress. That God's mercy exceeds the sins of these people. And so Tamar, she knows Judah. She knows he doesn't keep his word. And she says, give me your signet, your cord, and your staff. All, these, all three of these things would have been easily recognizable as belonging to Judah. For example, the signet was a clay ball that would hang around his neck that he would run over some wax to seal his signature. As one author says that she asked for the equivalent of his wallet, his keys, and his driver's license. She knew he had them if he gave those things up. Because he wanted things for his own pleasure, it was not a big deal for him to give them up. And we see the story continue as Judah got what he wanted, but it was more than he had bargained for as he has to come to the end of himself as we pick this back up in verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge of a woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the man and men of the place, where is the cult prostitute? Who was in Anam on the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. 
And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as well as her own, and we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent the young goat, and you did not find her. So shockingly, Judah keeps his word. He is sending the goat, and the language of sight and blindness, they continue. In verse 20 and 23, his friends could not find Tamar. Judah himself didn't go. Did you notice that? To find her, he sent the Canaanite friend, someone to do his bidding, someone else to keep his word. This man even knew that Tamar appeared to be a cult prostitute, showing that he was mixing in the religions of this culture in his daily practice of life. This was no big deal for Judah or his friend to participate in these things. But this friend, he didn't search forever, did he? He knew that people would probably question his motives and ask, why are you asking for this type of person, this prostitute needing payment? It's like asking around, do you, do you know where the hitman is? I owe him some money. Judah finally concludes and, and laughs that maybe he got the better end of the deal. Like Sarah laughed at the messengers of God when she said, or they said to her that she would give birth to a son. Doubting that God would be working, Judah laughs, but not realizing that God would work even through his sin. And so the truth comes out as we pick it back up in verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. And she being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. When Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. And so sin at this point is manifested in see, all, for all to see. No longer blind to Tamar's pregnancy, she is seen with a child. So it's been about three or four months, and it's clear that she has been immoral herself. And usually when someone sins, the sins that we most hate ourselves, we tend to be most harsh with, are we not? Like when it's really loud in my house. I like to yell at my kids and my family, be quiet. We see the hypocrisy all the time in our world. Like when my parents used to tell me, do as I say, but not as I do. Or like maybe one of your kids caught red-handed and they got to make sure that their siblings were called out as well by doing the same exact thing. Or like the Pharisees in the New Testament, when someone has transgressed their laws, it's a really big deal because they consider it as someone breaking God's laws. As our scripture reading plan this morning in Matthew, I'm sorry, in Mark 7 said, Jesus said this, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. 
What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For with, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. And out of Judah's mouth, he speaks. He is extreme, and he says, burn her. Judah realizes the seriousness of sinning against God, but he still does not see that he is the sinner. Eventually, though, the mirror comes out. Tamar brings out the mirror and the wallet, the keys, and the driver's license. The signet, the cord, and the staff are clearly his, and he knows it. And Judah finally sees that he's the sinner, the one who failed to fulfill his obligations to Tamar, the one who kept for himself his only son, the one who was unrighteous and seeing only things that could be used for his own pleasure. And in verse 26, Judah acknowledges that she is more righteous than I. They've both sinned. But unlike Reuben and Simeon and Levi who sinned against God, Judah's three older brothers, this is different. He acknowledges that he has sinned and he realizes that he brings no righteousness to the table. Church, when our eyes are open, we see that only God is righteous. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4. In, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light, let light shine out of darkness, has, not shown, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The moment that we come to the end of ourselves, we realize that we are born of Adam. We are born in sin. And we cannot not sin. We realize that we need a Savior. As Paul says in Romans 3.10, no one is righteous. No, not one. We realize that God sends His Son to die in our place on the cross for our sins. And when we believe in that, is now when we can be looked at as righteous. Paul says this later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The story is finished in this chapter with Judah. Now God gets to show us in this passage how he makes us to become righteousness of God through the line of Judah. We'll pick it up and finish in verse 27 through the end. When the time of her labor had come, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out his hand, and the midwife took a, and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out in the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. 
So Tamar has two twins, two boys, similar to what took place with Jacob and Esau. The older twin comes out first with his hand, and the midwife, she notices, puts a ribbon on it, and the second comes out completely after that. It was the younger of the two sons, Perez, who came out completely, would be in the line, in the lineage of Jesus. Perez's great, 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 seven of them would be, grandson would be King David, through whom Jesus would come. And so now we see clearly that God's hand is working out these details. Perez, he manipulates himself out, even in the womb, into a position ahead of his sibling, Zerah, like Cain over Abel, like Isaac over Ishmael, like Jacob over Esau, like Joseph over his ten brothers. The language of sight and seeing continues as the older son, Zerah, it means to come out or to appear. It's been manifest. It's been clear. It appears that God's hand is in control of all of this. And so finally, as we conclude, we see in the Gospel of Matthew that Tamar's name is included in the genealogy of Jesus. There are five women total in Matthew's account of the lineage of Jesus. Tamar, Rahab, which you learn about in the book of Joshua, I mean, uh, yeah, Judge Joshua, uh, who was a harlot. Ruth, a widow. Bathsheba, who committed adultery with David. And Mary, whose pregnancy was questioned from the very beginning. All of these women, except for Mary, were from nations other than Israel. Tamar and Rahab were both Canaanites. Ruth was a Moabite. Bathsheba was a Hittite. So in the genealogy of Jesus, women of questionable sexual ethics from nations other than Israel are in the lineage of Jesus. As we've seen with the lineage of Abraham, sexual sin is repeated over and over and over again. But with these women, it stops after Tamar with her twins. Rahab marries into the nation of Israel. Ruth marries Boaz. Bathsheba becomes the wife of David. And as one author said, while the enemy of God, the serpent that we've seen in Genesis 3, deceives, seeking to thwart this lineage of Christ and God's promises, it's oftentimes women. These women who is innocent as doves, but are shrewd as serpents, picking up on the language of Matthew 10. It's these women who play a key role in moving the promises of God forward. And God uses them to help Israel take back the land as Joshua returns with the Israelites. And so they're in their submission to men who sin against them. God uses these women to bring about children who would ultimately and eventually lead to Jesus, the Savior of the world. And sin is never okay. We need to stay focused on God's Word, to not succumb to the lies of the serpent, to the, the things that are a delight to the eyes. But when we do sin, not if, when, we repent, we trust, we receive Christ. And it's clear in our text this morning that sinners sin. 
Sinners can't help but sin. But God is righteous, and He makes sinners righteous through His Son, who ultimately paid the penalty for our sins to allow us to become the righteousness of God. That's worth worshiping, church. That's a God worth following. And out of God's grace towards us, we can direct back to God words of adoration that He is due and to live a life that is on this proper and narrow and straight path. So as I invite the worship team back up, we will respond in singing praise to God who deserves it, and we'll also respond through giving of our tithes and offerings in the normal ways that we do that in the back, online, or you can send a check in. As Eric reminded us, next week you can start giving your giving directly to Cornerstone Church. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you for today. Thank you that we can depend on you, the only righteous being who has ever walked, who has ever lived. God, we thank you for your son who came to die in our place on the cross and for our sins. And so we pray that you would help us to live a righteous and holy life as you are holy. God, we thank you that you will keep your promises even when we fail in following them. And so, God, we lift up our praise to you this morning as we close out our time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.